Christmas ought to be a time of hope, shouldn't it? It really should be a time of year when uh, um, we have uh, the most confidence in our future because when we look back on the coming of Jesus Christ, we are captivated by his love for us, by his willingness to sacrifice for our sake. And this season is a season when the entire world is hearing news that Jesus came. He was born to die. And um, as much as this season ought to be a time of hope, often the hope is based on presence, gathering together with family, and it's very short-lived. In fact, I think statistics would say that Christmas time is actually a time of rampant depression. It's actually a time of hopelessness for many people for one reason or another. Sometimes that, uh, that sadness and that depression comes because of the letdown of all the festivities and afterwards that deafening silence that happens. Um, I know that happens to me and my family sometimes. I think it's just a naturally psychological thing, especially after we get home from a tour on the road. You have so much activity. You've got so much going on. You're giving it everything you've got to see young people come and get saved. And then it's over, right? Um, women who have children, often there's so much of a buildup uh, to that uh, both emotional and physiological up to that time when they have the baby, there is what's called postpartum depression, which is not just a hormonal thing. There's a psychological aspect to that as well. They're looking forward to this baby, looking forward to this baby, and then the baby's here. I know me, myself, um, many of you know a lot of my story as far as being adopted and uh, there being a lot that I didn't know about uh, my birth mother and all of the circumstances surrounding my birth. And to be honest with you, um, when I began to realize that was a possibility and finally making a connection, meeting her, to be honest with you, those next six months were probably some of the most difficult months of my life. I never saw it coming. Um, And there are reasons for that, just psychological reasons for that, the letdown on the other side. But Christmas, which ought to be a time of year when we're filled with hope, when we're filled with joy, uh, for one reason or another, can be a time of hopelessness. What I want to do here this morning is I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that God has been burning on my heart for the last several months, and I just want to examine it. And um, I trust that this passage of Scripture will be an encouragement to you, not only now, as many of you are in the trenches of ministry, as many of you are very, very, um, is busy a good word? Busy is a good word, does that apply to you all right now? But also in that deafening silence that comes after uh, the Christmas festival is over, and all of a sudden the semester is over. (laughs) Silence. Nothing. I know you all are looking forward to going home, but the change of pace can often bring about a unique uh, letdown, if I can say it that way. And you can, during those times, if you're not careful, you can allow that letdown to affect you uh, and to bring you into a state of of hopelessness and discouragement. I have my Bible open to the book of Romans. Some of you have been studying Romans recently. Romans in chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5. Uh, Pastor Zemple, where are you at in Romans right now in the class? Romans chapter 5, if you would teach that for me. Okay, sounds good. Wow, for real? Like you're just about ready to head into chapter 5, or you're in it right now? Wow. 
okay, now I feel pressure. <laughs> Hopefully he doesn't get up and, you know, unteach everything that I'll teach here during this time. Oh, boy. All right, Romans chapter 5, verse number 1 here. The scripture says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the purposes for Romans chapter 5 is to show some of the results of justification. Justification isn't just a tick box on uh, your record that says you're no longer guilty, you're innocent. There is so much more that is bundled into the salvation package. One of the things that's bundled into that salvation package is you are now at peace with God. You now have peace with God. You who were his enemies are now reconciled. And not only are you at peace with God, you have peace inside of you as well because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But not only that, verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So we have access to peace because of Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 4 through the gospel, but we also have access to God's grace. We have access to the infinite storehouses of God's um, unlimited favor, His favorable attitude and His desire to bless us and help us and enable us to do anything that He calls us to do. But if you notice here at the end of verse 2, he shifts into really what I believe Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 is all about. He says here, and rejoice in, what's that next word? Hope. You see, some of the results of justification are that we are at peace and have peace. We have experienced, we have dipped our toes into the pools, uh, pool of God's grace and we can draw from it anytime we want by faith. But not only that, we have hope. And I want you to know hope is something that's very much lacking in our world today. From the political landscape uh, to the whole pandemic. Yes, I said it, all right? To everything else that's going haywire in our world, we're probably at the lowest point of hope ever. And yet, as a result of Jesus' work on the cross for you and me, we can have hope. Hope not just as a confident expectation, but as a subjective experience in our day-to-day -day life. He says in verse 3, and not only so, in other words, not only do we have hope for the far-off distant future when one day you're going to stand before God and hear Him declare you that you are innocent, that you are righteous, that you are holy because of the blood of Jesus, and not only at that day will you be granted entrance into the eternal state, but he says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. He says, hope isn't just for the far off distant future. It's for today too. See, you don't just have hope of heaven. You have hope here and now. And I'm, the purpose of my sermon is not so much to dissect verses 3 and 4, except to say that every trial that comes into your life, if you'll let it, is intended by God to be a miracle in the making. God wants you, when things go wrong, when things in your life or in your world are going haywire, God wants you to stick with Him. He wants you to trust Him. He wants you to watch what He can do, the deliverance He can bring. He wants to give you experience 
under your belt of seeing hopeless situations turn into divine miracles. And though that process of learning how God works and how God wants to take hopeless cases and do amazing things with them is building your experience and it's building your confidence in his ability to work. That's why at the end of this verse, verse 4, he says, patience, experience, and experience hope. God is trying to build hope in your life, not just for the far-off, distant, eschatological future, but for today, for tomorrow, for next week, for Christmas break, for next summer, for the day after graduation. God's trying to build that confident expectation. He's trying to write author and author hope in your heart and in your life. But really where I want to focus on is verses five, uh, 5 and following here. And it says, And hope maketh not ashamed. You know, the idea of that phrase, maketh not ashamed, is the idea that hope will not be confounded. Hope will not be led to a dead end. Hope will never be left in a lurch. Biblical hope, that is, this hope that's based on what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that's built by the trials and tribulations of every day. That biblical hope, confident expectation for something good in the future from God will always be vindicated. It'll always be validated. God is never, ever going to leave you high and dry. But here's the thing, young people. We know that's true. We know that God is faithful to his word, right? We know that theologically. And we know that ultimately one day we're going to end up in heaven. And we know that God works all things together for good, right? And that God is wanting to work the situations in your life out for your good and his glory. And yet, when it comes to tomorrow, when it comes to next week, when it comes to Christmas break, when it comes to next summer, when it comes to after graduation, we can often live hopeless lives. We're just not sure. We don't have that confidence that in our case, God is going to do something mighty and miraculous through our lives. We think that because of our own unique, weird quirks, <laughs> and because of our weaknesses and our neuroticisms, right? Because we're a little bit crazy in some areas. All of you are. We're all compartmentally crazy, okay? Just ask my wife if you've traveled with me. You've seen some of those compartmental weird things as a part of me. And we think that because of some way that I'm wired, some strange um, uh, insufficiency in my life, that somehow, some way, I'm going to mess it all up. And because we know us, because we know ourselves, because we know our propensities, because we know our weaknesses, because we know how often we seem to disappoint God and everyone around us, we don't have hope. Oh, we have hope for the far-off distant future, but not for tomorrow. <laughs> you may have hope for God delivering you and taking you to heaven one day, but not for your exam on Friday or next Friday. Not for your ability to have a real divine appointment before or after one of these Christmas carol events. Not for your ability to actually get that paper or project done on time. Some of you know who I'm talking to. <laughs> we don't have hope 
or that confident expectation in those things. And I want you to notice this here in verse number five. He says, hope maketh not ashamed. This is a Bible fact here. Hope is not left at a dead end. God is not going to desert you in your greatest time of need. I want to read just something that I've written regarding this verse here. This hope, this choice to trust and wait and expect good from difficulty will never lead us to a devastating dead end. God will always deliver and vindicate those who hope in him, though it may not appear to be so for the moment. You see, in that intervening time, from when we're hoping till when God delivers, whether it be days or decades, our feelings don't always align with our expectation. Okay, I want you for just a moment to separate hope as an objective mm, desire in your heart and, and hope as a feeling in your heart. Okay, if we can maybe dissect for just a moment here. We endure hoping against hope and expecting without sight, and yet we still feel the stress of the moment and the knot in the pit of our stomachs whenever the storms descend and the winds whip up around us. In our humanity, when the waves come crashing down, our blood pressure still spikes and our hearts still sink inside of us. Though we know that God is going to ultimately deliver based on God's track record and our past experience, we don't always Feel it in the moment of trial. Though we have confidence and expectation in the final destination, that doesn't make the ride any less bumpy along the way. See, that's why God has given us one more tool in our amazing toolkit of His grace, and this one is for our hearts and not our heads. I want you to look back at verse 5. He says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because... Here's the grounds for that assertion. Here's what can keep you stable when everything in your life seems to be spinning out of control because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Now it's easy to just gloss over that verse. There's so much good stuff coming in the verses to follow often in your Bible study and in your Bible reading. It's easy to skip over life-changing phrases and, and sentences. And I just want to assert to you that phrase right there is a life-changing phrase, particularly when it talks about the love of God being shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. The idea of that word shed abroad, it connotes an abundant, extravagant effusion. He does not say given, but shed abroad in our heart, so showing the profusion of it. Paul actually uses this same verb to depict the pouring out of God's Spirit. You say, what is this pouring out of the love of God in our hearts? What is that talking about? What that's talking about is the Spirit of God taking the reality of God's love and so pouring it into our hearts that we subjectively feel overflowingly loved by God. See, I think we all know it's one thing to believe the facts of something and it's another thing to experience the reality of it. And often, I would say, we, in our theology and in our preaching, 
We tell everybody to focus on the facts, right? Don't get all caught up in the feelings, right? Because feelings go up and down. And I want to say that is true. Um, and that is a good rule of thumb to have. But God recognizes that we are human beings. And as human beings, we're not just minds. We also have emotions. And those emotions at times, because of our humanity and the way we're wired, they need a little bit of help. And so God has given us something that is unbelievable to help us have hope. And that thing that he's given us is the subjective experience of a love of God as ministered by the Holy Spirit of God. See, when our feelings are reeling and our emotions don't seem to line up with our confident expectation, we can bring it all before the Lord and the Holy Spirit will flood our hearts with subjective, uh, with the subjective emotional reality of God's unswerving, unending, unchanging love for us. And the Spirit doesn't just convince us of the facts of God's love. He bathes us with the feelings of God's love for us. In other words, he helps us feel what is fact, that God loves us. You know, in case you maybe aren't totally convinced that that's what this is talking about, I just want to read a couple quotes from some commentaries that I consulted when I was studying this. Um, here, uh, Douglas Moose says, the confidence we have for the day of judgment is not based only on our intellectual recognition of the facts of God's love or even only on the demonstration of God's love on the cross, although well, that's important as we'll see later, but also on the inner subjective certainty that God does love us. Paul is asserting two things at once, that God's love has been poured into our hearts in the past and that this love is now within us and this love is conveyed to our sensations by the Holy Spirit. And it is this internal, subjective, yes, even emotional sensation within the believer that God does indeed love us. Love expressed and made vital in real concrete actions on our behalf that gives to us the assurance that hope will not disappoint us. The figure used, Lenski says, in poured out is that of water. Our dry, arid, lifeless hearts have poured out into them the love of God for us. This may come upon us like a stream or like a rain of living water and change our hearts into fruitful, delightful soil. How much of this love embodied in his gifts is poured out in our hearts depends on the receptivity which the Spirit is able to produce in us. Let your heart not remain a thimble or a tin cup. Let it be a vast lake. The volume of God's gifts, of love's gifts from God through spirit and word is unrestrained. The only restraint put upon it is our reluctance, our timidity, our lurking thoughts of unbelief and the like. You know, the fact of the matter is, if you've had any kind of a real walk with God, at some point in time, you have experienced what this text is talking about. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of you 
It may be your hour with God, maybe in a corporate prayer meeting with the church on Wednesday night or a Saturday morning prayer meeting, maybe Saturday night, maybe a time when you met together with your fellowship for prayer. Maybe it was just you and a few friends who sensed your desperate need and got alone with God. Maybe this was brought about because of sin that you were struggling with and you knew that you needed God and you knew that you fell so far short of what God wanted it wasn't even funny. And maybe you gathered together in your time of collective need and you came before the throne of God's grace and the only way you can explain it is that during that time as you were on your knees the love of God so saturated your hearts you just knew and you felt that God loves us God loves us I really believe that this subjective experience of the love of God ought to so fill you and overflow you that it comes out your eyes When's the last time you wept because God loved you in a time of prayer? When was the last time that you were so overwhelmed by the fact that in spite of your faults and your glaring rebellion and error in your hearts, in spite of the fact that you constantly get distracted and stray from God, that God still loves you, that God hasn't given up on you, that God still is just as much for you as the day He died on the cross on your behalf. When was the last time that the love of God was so felt that it brought you to tears? Listen, I'm not saying that we need to look for an emotional experience, and yet this verse is talking about an emotional experience. There's no way around it. I may have shared this at some point with the men. I don't remember when, but I remember years ago when I was a Bible college student here, I remember I was feeling, I was very acutely aware of my failure. Um, there have been a few things that had happened in my life that I was greatly ashamed of. And I, it was kind of some of those things where I felt like, you know, I shouldn't have gone back and done that again. We've all been there, right? And I remember I walked into the auditorium. All the lights were off. That time I didn't know how to turn them on, but it was fine that they were off for me at that time. And I remember I pulled out a hymnal. And I remember going to one of the songs. I don't even remember which song it was. But I remember as I began to just look through and just say out loud the words to that song, God came upon me and so overwhelmed me with the reality of his love for me in spite of my failures. I wept. I wept. You might say, Mr. Bosler, I'm not an emotional kind of person. You might not be. You might be one of those cool as a cucumber types that drives people like me crazy. I'm not one of those people. Um, but you know what? I believe even cool as a cucumber type people, even those level-headed type people need to experience the love of Jesus Christ. I find that those cool, common, collected individuals can so often live in just the theological, just the fact and figures kind of a mentality that they miss out on part of their birthright, which is the subjective outpouring of God's love into your heart. You know, um, I, uh, I remember back when I was uh, first beginning to see my wife. Um, we started courting Thanksgiving break 2007, and I had all kinds of things in mind on how it was going to be, you know, as a young 
<clears throat> okay, I was kind of more emotions-driven kind of a young man there at that time. Um, I kind of expected that the moment we started on our first courtship date, am I allowed to call it a date? I don't know what else to call it. Um, but our first court, um, we... Uh, <laughs> I just expected it to be googly-eyed both ways. You know what I'm saying? I just expected for this certain experience where, you know, she was just going to be fawning over me because I'm, you know, of course, you know, of course she would fawn over me, right? <clears throat> and of course I was going to be fawning over her and oh, it was just going to be great. And I was so looking forward to that experience. And I remember at that point in time, just to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know if my wife will be fine with me saying this or not, but I'm going to say it. She knew God wanted her to court me, but the feelings weren't quite there yet. And so we started, and I was, man, guns a-blazing. I've been praying about this for a couple years. And she was just, God had given her enough of a clarity on his will. Okay, we'll take the first step and start this relationship. And I had no clue on the fact that, fellas, you need to win her. Okay, you might be handsome but that's not going to get it all done, okay? Don't think about it until this is all beginning. But anyway, I, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that I had a winner. I just thought, of course, she'd be won by me, right? Um, <laughs> without any effort of my own. And so as we begin into the relationship, just to be perfectly honest with you, um, her emotions weren't coming along as quickly as I wanted them to. And uh, days grew into weeks. And I remember at one point, I was really, in my heart, I was hurting. I was hurting because I felt like, is this the way it's supposed to be? Did I do something wrong? What's going on? And I remember, um, again, I began to win her heart. I began to make decisions of sacrifice and so on. And I just want to say, relationships are going to cut to the core of your selfishness. And God was doing so much in my heart and in my life. But I remember as our relationship developed and as we grew closer and as God began to teach me that love, as far as between a husband and a wife, is not just the emotional experience. It is, it does involve choices of self-sacrifice. As God was dealing in me about that, as God was dealing in her about that, I remember there was one point in time particularly and I'll be probably more candid than I've been with many of you about this, this moment. I remember um, I'd had a history of some viewing issues as a teenager and early in college, okay? When my wife's parents, my soon-to-be, hopefully, in-laws, right, uh, came to have their interview with me, they asked me a bunch of questions. And, um, and I wanted to be, full disclosure, tell them everything, except it's kind of embarrassing to use certain words about certain things, right? And so at one point in time, I told them, I said, you know, I did have a significant history as a teenager and early in college of looking at things I shouldn't look at. And I thought that should solve it right there. And that probably would have solved it for anybody under 40. They had no idea what I was talking about. I don't know if they thought, oh, you know, he, he shouldn't have looked at the clearance rack at Target. I don't know. I, I don't know what they were thinking. But they were not thinking what I was thinking. Okay? So fast forward. Again, I'm just being perfectly honest with you. I had one, uh, one moment in time while I was engaged that I stumbled and fell. Okay? First time literally in years prior, and it was... 
I believe, to my knowledge, the last time in any significant way. Okay? Stumbled and fell. And I thought, well, I'm going to communicate, right? And I remember I came and I told her. She told her parents. And um, in the process of it, I had mentioned to her that as a teenager, you know, I'd had some issues with that, but I'd had victory for a good period of time. And her parents called me up and they said, you never told us about your history. You never told us about that this was an issue. We're going to have to put this whole thing on hold. I'll be honest with you, I felt about the lowest that I'd ever felt my entire life. Um, I was working at Custom Service Hardware at that time, um, and I remember that uh, going to work in the morning, and I was, the, the, all I can explain is that the emotions were so intensely swirling around in my heart, I could not focus on my job. I remember it almost felt like there were claws tearing at my emotional soul inside and I, I was pretty hopeless because I was thinking not only this thing isn't going to happen because of my own stupidity but I was thinking what's this going to do to my ministry what's this going to do to my future I remember thinking I'm toast it's all over it's all over and um, at one point Along the way, um, I'd gotten permission to talk to her again, and um, I don't remember all the specifics, to be honest with you, but I remember there was a point in time when they said and she said, Bobby, we know you've made some mistakes, but we love you anyway. It's hard to describe in words. I feel like even now in telling this part of the story, it's really hard to get the emotion across of what flooded my soul in that moment of time when I realized in spite of my own sick sin, they chose to love me anyway. I felt loved. I remember even coming into our wedding day, I was kind of insecure about things, to be honest with you, because I thought, you know, maybe she could cut and run any point, you know? I guess it's always a possibility. <laughs> I remember even on the at the rehearsal, to be honest with you, in my heart, I was kind of hoping this would all work out fine and we get end up getting married. I know you're like, I see Esther over there, she's like, this is terrible. She married me anyway. And you know what? Our time together has been just one after another after another, both from her to me and from me to her, exercises in loving anyway. And there have been several key times when I've done something dumb, perhaps, or said something dumb, or totally crossed the line in this area with a thing that I said, and, you know, and for either her or me to be able to just look and know they love me anyway. I never understood what people could say, how a couple's love could grow over the years, and I think it's because you just do dumb things over the years and they just keep loving you anyway. <laughs> but here's the thing. I've been talking about human relationships. We're talking about God here. See, God doesn't just know 
what you said. God knows what you thought. God doesn't just know your, the histories that are public knowledge. He knows the things done in secret. And he loves you anyway. His love does not diminish. His love doesn't diminish because of your laziness. His love doesn't diminish because it's been a long time since you've led somebody to Jesus Christ. His love doesn't diminish because you just fly off the handle every now and then. His love for you doesn't diminish because you're just so incredibly timid. You'd never step out and do anything for God. His love doesn't diminish because you're a little wacky inside in your head, because you're a little cuckoo. His love doesn't diminish because you're weird or backward. His love doesn't diminish because of your family history. His love doesn't diminish because of your grade in Greek. Praise the Lord for that, right? <laughs> what God wants is he wants us to subjectively experience that love, not just know it as a fact in our time of need. He wants us to come before him and he wants it to so overflow and overwhelm and fill us to the brim that it comes out our eyes. Say, Brother Bosler, how do you do that? I think sometimes we're so busy that we never take time to be alone with him. I don't think I've ever had that happen other than corporate prayer meetings now and then, but I've never had that where it's just been me and God and somebody else sitting in the room, personally. The greatest times have been times where I've found a closet somewhere or a boiler room somewhere. Are they allowed in the boiler rooms? I don't know, but anyway, sorry. Everybody's going to be trekking for the boiler rooms after the service. <laughs> It's been the times when I've been able to go into a nursery by myself and turn off the lights and just look up at the top corner of the ceiling and talk out loud to God because I just needed it so much. It's been those times when I have felt so keenly aware of the fact that I'm a nothing. I've got nothing. And I get mad at my kids sometimes and I'm impatient and I am a compartmental perfectionist in all the areas that don't matter. <laughs> that I don't like to plan ahead sometimes, that I just want my teams to play it by ear, okay? Um, during those times when I see my future and I see it and it looks grim and dark and hopeless that I come before God, I come into his throne room alone, and he pours out that subjective feeling that it's going to be okay. He's there for me. He's not going to lead me to a dead end. He's not going to leave me high and dry. But his love for me is just as great as it's ever been. Um, I wrote this just a couple days ago. Because um, again, this is not something that's just for certain seasons of your life. I find myself resorting to this regularly. I wrote this in my journal Lord, I thank you for loving me despite my faults, shortcomings, rough edges, or glaring errors. That doesn't mean that you approve of where I falter, but your love sees more in me than my strengths and weaknesses. You value me not based on my performance, but on your choice to love me. Thank you for choosing to love such a wretched worm as I. Thank you for sending me your grace and power, me who deserves not a shred of it. I want to dwell in your love today 
Not by falling short and marveling at your love still being there. No, I simply want to live conscious of your love all the day long. See, one of the things that God wants you to experience, and really this is a necessary prerequisite for living with hope every day, <clears throat> is to experience the love, the feelings of God's love. And I have two more points that I don't have time for. <laughs> I never run into this. Actually, I do all the time. <clears throat> um, I'll just briefly overview here because you'll get it, I know, from Pastor Zimple here. Verses 6 through 8, he says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice the word for at the beginning of that verse. He just said that God wants to shed abroad that subjective experience of the love of God, and that experience is based on something. There is something undergirding the emotional experience of God's love, and that is the historical act of Jesus dying on the cross. For your sins. When you look at the facts about his act for you, that undergirds the subjective experience. It adds validity. It adds substance to those feelings. Feelings based on nothing are nothing but feelings. But feelings based on facts are true. He says here, um, uh, for, scarcely yet, uh, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. He says, we've all seen throughout history these rare occasions where some noble individual sacrifices his life for some innocent party, for some person in need, for some noble cause. But he says in verse 8, but... In contrast to what you've seen every now and then throughout history, he says, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, when Jesus died for us, he didn't die for the innocent party. He didn't die for the person in need. He didn't die for a noble cause. He died for the enemy. He died for the villain the super villain. He died for the evil ones, which are you and me. And he says here much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. If God did that when we were his enemies, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we now receive the atonement. God wants us to boast every single day. He wants us to live in confidence every single day, aided by the subjective, experiencing the feelings of his love, aided by examining the facts of God's love, Jesus didn't just say, I love you. He did, I love you. And uh, the result of all of that is he wants us to expect the future of God's love. He wants you to look ahead with confidence, knowing if he did that for me while I was an enemy, now that I am reconciled to him and am truly his friend, the future has never been brighter. Can I say this, young people? Your future has never been brighter than it is today. It doesn't matter how poorly you performed in the nine-week block. It doesn't matter how much of a failure your soul winning has been this past semester. It doesn't matter how fruitless your prayer efforts have appeared to be. It doesn't matter how weird and quirky you feel like you are. It doesn't matter how popular or unpopular you are. It doesn't matter whether you're struggling with the English language or 
you've got it down. I want you to know the future is as bright as God's love is hot for you. You know, young people, I, I want you to understand, again, I have so much more that I could say, stories, illustrations, but I, I've run out of time here today. Let me just give this quote here to, to end this. He who thus knows the love of God and feels its power and its control daily in his very heart through the Spirit is certain that his hope of the glory of God will never put him to shame. The God who began his work in us will not abandon it or leave it unfinished. God's love isn't based on your performance. It's based on his choice to love you. Lord Jesus, would you please bless these young people as they head into some busy times here. I pray, God, that you would so lead them to that subjective experience of your love that they'll never for a second doubt it. Lord, we need that emotional experience from time to time, and I do pray that these young people would not just say that this is a nice idea, but Lord, that you would bring about circumstances in their lives so that they would be on their faces reveling in it before the day is done. Lord, I pray that every one of them would feel it, <laughs> that you would use that to give them hope. In Jesus' name, amen.